So why don't we stand on up, and we're going to read God's word together, okay? This is Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation, uh, the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we had passed through to spy it out, it's an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We're talking about grumbling today, so but the, the Lord saw fit to break my finger this week uh, in a bar fight, you know, I'm just kidding, uh, in, a, <laughs> in co-ed softball. So uh, anyway, so if you're distracted by that, I'll try not to, anyway, um, we are, ow, we, <laughs> I've got to not clap. Okay, we are in the fourth week of our series in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, today we reach the book with the worst title in English, <laughs> uh, and the best title in Hebrew. Uh, in English, it's called Numbers. Thrilling right? You're like, okay, let's see what Deuteronomy is about. Um, but in Hebrew, this number is called Bemidbar. Does anyone know what that means? In the wilderness. Yeah, now we're talking, right? That's a good, that's a good title. It sounds like a Hollywood movie. Um, so if you keep reading past the, the numbers, <laughs> like the literal census data, uh, you'll find it's about Israel's action-packed journey uh, through the uh, Sinai wilderness, through the howling wilderness of Paran and Moab, and to the banks of the promised land. And there's miracles and lightning and earthquakes and snakes and battles and a pagan sorcerer and his talking donkey, and it's, it's just awesome. Um, so let's get caught up, okay? We, we began in Genesis, the origin of things. God creates life. Humans choose death. Um, we travel from the Garden of Eden to slavery in Egypt. Uh, but God makes a really crucial promise to a man named Abraham that it will be through his family, his dysfunctional family, his offspring, that despite their dysfunction, God's still going to fulfill 
his original purpose and intention to bless the whole world through Abraham's family. Uh, but that promise seems to get in trouble because Abraham's offspring multiply, but they end up in slavery, right, in Egypt. Um, and so in Exodus, we have redemption. Redemption. God raises up Moses to liberate his people from slavery and lead them to Mount Sinai to worship him in the wilderness. And we stay at Sinai for Exodus and all of Leviticus. And Leviticus is about communion. Okay, how, how is it that these rebellious, sinful people are going to maintain a relationship with this holy God? And that's, of course, through different practices like sacrifices in the tabernacle that they build at Sinai and later the temple in Jerusalem. And that brings us to Numbers, which is about uh, sanctification, which is a big word for the process of becoming holy, like God. Becoming holy through the school of trust that the wilderness represents. I love how Joe said it two weeks ago. Uh, God got the people out of Egypt, but he still has to get Egypt out of the people before they go into the promised land. All right, so this pattern from origin to redemption, communion, sanctification, and as Jake Lemmer will teach us next week, mission, uh, this is the, the pattern the, of the story. And it's why we've been saying that the Torah is kind of like the Bible in miniature. When you zoom out and you look at the whole Bible, um, we've been created by God. God is our origin. We've been redeemed through the blood, not of bulls and goats and lambs, but of Christ. Uh, we are communing with God through the Holy Spirit, and we are now being sanctified, made holy by the Holy Spirit as we seek to live on mission for Jesus and be faithful witnesses to the hope of eternal life. Um, and this is why we'll see that when the New Testament authors, that's the Christian part of the Bible, right at the, the end there, the last third, when they place Christians in the story, like you and I, in the story, where do they place us? They place us in numbers, okay? They say, you've been redeemed for freedom. Jesus Christ has set you free, but now you're in the wilderness. Like, you are in the desert. The promised land, heaven, a renewed earth, that, that hasn't happened yet, okay? That's in the future. That's most likely after you die. Now's the part, sorry, where you die, okay? You die to yourself. You got to die before you die, you know? We got to get Egypt out of you. This is not the promised land part. This is the painful renunciation part. This is the part where God gets your slavery to, to food, right, to alcohol, to people's opinions of you, to being a judgmental person, to jealousy, to control, to passivity, to porn, to Twitter, to scrolling, whatever. God is getting that slavery out of us to get us as ready as possible for heaven where it is all freedom, where our wills are aligned with his will to love in freedom to love and freedom. And the good news is that if we cooperate with that process of sanctification, the desert that we're in, it doesn't feel that long, okay? But numbers is long, okay? And as we're going to see, 
It's about 40 years longer than it had to be, all right? We can very much resist the process as they do. So here's an outline of numbers, 36 chapters, and I got like 36 minutes, so we got to go, okay? Uh, Camping in the wilderness of Sinai, uh, where they've been for about a year, and then we're going to travel, and then we're going to camp in the wilderness of Paran. Stuff's going to go really wrong there. Uh, Then, you know, 40 or so years go by. Uh, Then we're traveling again, the younger generation, and we get to the wilderness of Moab for the final part of the book. So, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt. He says, Take a census, count, of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, According to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron, the high priest, shall list them company by company. So as you can tell, this is not a camping trip. This is boot camp, okay? We're, we're not counting so that little Seth doesn't get left behind, okay? We're, we're counting men 20 and over for the war, for the army, right, for the invasion. And it's a big number, over 600,000 strong, just men who can fight. 600,000. I mean, that's just that group. This is millions of people. Imagine the logistics here, right? They're overwhelming. Um, And so in these first 10 chapters, we learn exactly where each tribe is to camp, and they camp in this cross-shaped pattern with the tabernacle right in the center. And the Levites camp around the tabernacle. Uh, the Levites, they're kind of like roadies, okay? They're like the, the security and setup and teardown crew for the tabernacle. Uh, they serve the priests who run the show. Um, and, you know, so there's all sorts of rules, as we should expect. There's lots of rules in boot camp. Um, and it's kind of easy to get lost in it at all, but we find this in the middle of chapter 6, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, his brother, the high priest, and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Right? To shine is to like smile, right? To shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his face upon you and give you peace. Shalom. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This little punctuation mark uh, reminds us what this whole story, the whole Torah is about. It's about God the main character of the Torah, and how he delights in blessing his people, Israel, whom he calls his son, his son, so that they can take his blessing on to the rest of the world. They're blessed to be a blessing. They're special. They're holy to him, every last one of them. And this is what makes happen, what makes happens That is what makes what happens next (laughs) so tragic. Um, It's been about a year, right, since they left Egypt, and they celebrate their first 
Passover, there at Mount Sinai. And the cloud of God's presence lifts up and starts to move, which means it's time to go. And the Levites blow their silver trumpets, and they start a three-day march into the wilderness, it says, toward the sunrise with Moses and Aaron and the Ark of the Covenant out in front of them. And it's just supposed to be 11 days or so, right? It's got to be extremely exciting. Um, But then the grumbling begins. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and fire, the fire of the Lord, burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So just like on their way to Sinai, they only make it three days, guys, three days before the grumbling starts again. And this this tight little story here, it establishes a pattern in the book. The people grumble. God gets angry. Uh, The people cry out to Moses. Moses prays to God. And then God answers, but there's still consequences. God pardons, but there's still consequences. So right away, um, you, you see that this must be a huge burden on Moses. And that's what the very next story is about. Okay, so verse 4. Now the rabble, this is the mixed multitude that, uh, of different people that came out of Egypt with the Israelites. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept. Again, and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. You know what manna is? It's literally like cake from heaven, okay? So God is raining cake from heaven uh, to feed them for what should be like two weeks as they're going to an abundant promised land, and he just rained actual fire from heaven, okay, for grumbling. And the people are like, guys, remember cucumbers, you know, and onions? Oh, like we should just go back to Egypt. So Moses has a complete conniption fit, okay? He goes to God and he's like, look, look, verse 12, did I conceive all these people? (laughs) Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom across the desert? Where am I supposed to go to get meat to feed a literal army and their families? I can't do this alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, okay, if you really love me, just kill me now so that I don't have to look at myself anymore. (laughs) That's, that's the verse. I paraphrase the end a little bit, but that's, that's it. That's it. Right? And God responds in a very interesting way. I mean, first he's got to be like, you're kind of a hot mess, Moses. Um, So before he deals with the people, he says, all right, gather 70 leaders, and I'm going to put my spirit on them to share the burden with you, Moses. And Moses responds with complete humility. He's not like, no, 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 I got this. You know, he doesn't cling to his power. He says he wishes everyone would have God's spirit, which is pretty cool. Um, The next chapter claims he's the the humblest man on the planet. And so God now turns back to the people, verse 19, and he says, You shall not just eat meat, 
for one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until you have meat coming out of your nostrils and you hate it and you never want meat again. (laughs) That's literally the Bible, okay? Uh, He he sounds like a parent, right? Uh, He's like, you want meat? I'll give you meat. We're going to have meat every day for a month, you know? Uh, This is great. Uh, So God sends this wind and quail begin to drop into the camp, okay? Quail, the little, you know, birds. And uh, so I did the math, the numbers, and the amount that God sends, you could walk for an entire day in any direction, it's like bigger than San Francisco, and quail would be piled up a foot and a half above the ground. It's like you need quail galoshes, you know? It's just quail every whale, every whale, everywhere. It's like, it's crazy, you know? It's crazy. And the people, what do they do? It says, those who gather, gathered 10 homers each, which is almost 5,000 pounds of quail, each person that gathered, okay? So, a little greedy, right? And so they're munching, and verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth, like not like they needed to floss, but they're still eating, okay? Before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. And that plague is an interesting word because it's said that's the word used for what killed the firstborn in Egypt, right? So they want to go back to Egypt and so that some of them die like those in Egypt did. So it becomes clear what's the real issue here, right? It's trust. It's trust. The wilderness is a school of trust. Slaves don't naturally trust, right? Because they're mistreated. Sons must learn to trust. That's the foundation of sanctification. God just demonstrated his ability to provide more than they could ever dream of on this short little trip, and yet they still feel the need to hoard and gorge themselves, right? They can't think of what's right ahead of them, the promised land. Trust is the big issue in the wilderness, as we see through the story, if you care, pay close attention, the distrust and the grumbling, it spreads. It starts at the rabble, starts on the outside of the camp. In chapter 11, it moves to all the people. And then, in the very next story, in chapter 12, it will be Miriam, the prophet, and Aaron, the priest, Moses' own brother and sister, who grumble against him. And what they say is, hey, doesn't God speak through us too? And then... In chapter 16, we get Korah, the Levite, who leads a rebellion. And what do they say? They say, hey, aren't we all holy? Isn't the Lord with all of us? Which is true. But then they say, well, what makes you so special, Moses and Aaron? And after the first generation dies out, after 40 years, the next generation, surprise, surprise, begins to grumble as well about being hungry and thirsty, and on and on the grumbling goes, until twice in the story, we get outright rebellion in both generations. So the people, right, they're not content with their hard life in the wilderness, their hardships and misfortunes. Miriam and Aaron aren't content with playing second fiddle to Moses, Um, the Levites aren't content with their roadie job behind the scenes. They want to be the priests. They want to run the show. And then in chapter 25, the men aren't content with their wives and subsequently become discontent with their God, and they worship Baal instead. 
And so it ends with outright idolatry. Begins with basic questions of trust. Can God take care of us in the wilderness where we are? Is there really a promised land? Am I going to be okay? Right, isn't that the question? And we see this plainly in God's most severe judgment in the book of Numbers. In chapter 13, right before 14 where we started reading, 12 spies are sent out on a 220-mile journey to scout out the promised land. And they come back and they spread a bad rep- I can't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, a bad report. They say that the cities and the people are huge and strong, right? And the land will eat us up. We got no chance. We got no chance. We just go back to Egypt. And so in verse 14, or chapter 14, all the people begin to grumble. And two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, no. No, no, no. Think about it. If God delights in us, as we say every day when we're blessed, Surely he will bring us into the land and give it to us. And it's a land that flows with milk and honey. Remember what God said. And and remember the people respond by trying to stone them to death. And so Moses prays and God pardons them, right? He doesn't just wipe them all out immediately, but he does make the judgment that this generation will not see the promised land. They won't enter into God's rest. What should have been An 11-day march becomes 40 years of wandering until everyone over 20 who is counted in the original census is dead. So there's another census at the end of the book. That's why. And this devastating moment in the Torah becomes a warning, a byword, throughout the whole rest of the Bible. Uh, One example is in poetry, Psalm 78. So they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? So he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also provide meat and bread for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of anger against Israel. Why? Verse 22. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. They saw God. They believed in him. He was right in front of them, right? But they didn't believe in him. They didn't trust his saving power. And here's Paul in a letter to the Corinthian church. He says something similar in Romans. He says, Nevertheless, with most of that generation, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place, why? As examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He goes on, verse 10, we must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. For our instruction. Remember what Torah means, teaching, instruction. So what what does it Torah us? It teaches us that grumbling is a remarkably serious sin in Scripture because it is a telltale symptom of a most grievous disease. It's distrust. Distrust in God's saving power. Unbelief. Proud unbelief is the source of our grumbling. 
And it really doesn't matter how much kindness God just heaps on a grumbler because they will see the very next difficult thing that happens to them in life as evidence. It's proof, oh, God really is out to get me. Doesn't care about me at all. You know this person? Are you this person? <laughs> sounds, sounds familiar. You know, you know them by their dramatic pity parties. Would that we had died in Egypt, right? 14.2. Would that we have died in this wilderness. So what's God's judgment? Okay. Your will be done. Wish granted. You can die in the wilderness. And it's severe. It's severe. Maybe we think it's a little too severe. Any grumblers in here think this is a bit much? <laughs> a little too severe? Uh, my my C.S. Lewis reading group, a few weeks ago we finished the book, The Great Divorce. And The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis is this imaginative book where Lewis and a group of ghosts take a bus ride. They take a bus trip from hell <laughs> to heaven, the outskirts of heaven, and all of them but one find a reason not to stay. And they go back by their own choice. They won't let go of their pride, their ego, and enter into joy. Um, and one of the, the, the women, women that we meet from hell is a grumbler. Um, and Lewis hears her grumbling on and on. It takes like a whole, a whole page. Um, and he turns to his heavenly guide, George MacDonald, and he says, now wait a minute. This woman doesn't deserve hell. She isn't wicked. You know, she's only just a silly, garrulous old woman who's gotten into a bad habit of grumbling and feels that a little kindness and rest and change would do her all right. <laughs> and his mentor uh, responds to him. She says, ah, that is what she once was and may still be. But the question, the whole question is whether she is still a grumbler or only a grumble. And Lewis says, well, how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? And he responds, you know what it is like. It begins with a grumbling mood, and you yourself still distinct from it, perhaps still criticizing it. And you, in a dark hour, may will that mood, embrace it. And you can repent of it and come out of it again. But there may come a day where you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the grumbling mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble going on forever like a machine. That's Lewis' terrifying description of hell. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood. Remember, Numbers tells us explicitly that what? God delights in his people. His face smiles, shines upon us. He longs to bless us richly, lavishly, absurdly, comically, like an ocean of quail, right? He can and he will take care of us in the wilderness. And there is an eternal homeland that he is leading us to, and it's beyond what any of us can imagine or ask for. But Numbers is also a severe warning about the seriousness of grumbling. And church people, we, we tend to think of grumbling as like a minor condition, you know, just 
drink water, take a vacation, get plenty of rest, <laughs> you know. But this, this is the thing. The promised land doesn't cure grumbling. Don't need a vacation, okay? I'm going on vacation this week, full disclosure. Uh, numbers is a perpetual reminder that grumbling is a terminal cancer that demands a radical treatment, wilderness. Grumbling erodes our souls. Grumbling destroys our witness. Friedrich Nietzsche, a famous philosopher and, and atheist, he absolutely railed at Christians in his day about this. He says, if your belief makes you blessed, then appear to be blessed. <laughs> it, your faces have always been more damaging to your belief than our objections have. If this good news of your Bible were written on your faces you would not need to insist so obstinately on the authority of that book. Whew. Our faces. Listen to Moses, Deuteronomy 32.5. They've dealt corruptly with him, speaking of this generation, not our generation, that generation. They're no longer his children because they've become blemished. They're a crooked and a twisted generation. Now listen to Paul talking to the church in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. See this exact same language? Among whom you, what? Shine as lights in the world. So let me ask you, like, does your face shine? Does your face shine? Or are you becoming a grumble. Like, be honest, has misfortune, hardship, COVID, politics, COVID politics, right? Uh, stress, betrayal, comparison, corruption, abuse, fear, simple inconvenience, taking too long to buffer, standing in line, right? Darken your countenance. You are not alone in that. Right? The temptation to feel bitter and sorry for ourselves and grumble and gossip is so real right now. So let's talk about the cure. Numbers 20. The younger generation, they grumble for the first time. They want water. They're thirsty. And Moses gets mad, even though for the first time, God doesn't. God's like, give him water. They need to learn. But Moses goes up on the rock and he calls them a bunch of rebels and he smacks the rock twice. <laughs> and God says, Moses, because you didn't believe in me, Moses, because you didn't believe in me, you're not going in either. Apparently, God takes grumbling against rebellious kids these days more seriously than whatever grumbling kids naturally do. So Moses himself, the most humble man on the planet, was on his way to becoming a grumble. It's amazing. So what hope is there for us, right? Well, that's the next story. Numbers 21. The people become impatient again. And they grumble. And this time God does get angry and he sends fiery serpents <laughs> to bite them. And this time they do something new. They don't just cry out but they confess their sin. That's new. They confess their grumble 
to Moses. They say, we've been grumbling. And God says, okay, Moses, here's what you do. Verse 8, make a bronze serpent, set it up on a pole, and everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. When the people confess their grumbling, God provides healing. And all they have to do is look up. When you're in any kind of pain, what's the hardest thing in the world to do? It's to look up and to move forward, right? We, we naturally want to look down. Like pain draws our attention down till we're consumed with ourselves and our problems. And we might, we might look around and draw others in with, with our grumbling and our gossiping into our pain and our hurt and our burden. But healing begins when we look up. Healing begins. We, we begin to move forward again towards the promised land of joy and peace when we look up. And as many of you will know, in John 3, Jesus taught that this story was really about him. Like the snake up on the pole, Jesus says he became a curse up on the cross, bearing the burden of our sin. So that when we snake-bit folks look at him, we shall live. Jesus is our better Moses. He is our humble leader who shares his spirit with us, who never grumbles about us behind our backs, even when asked to suffer for our sins. He is our better Aaron, our great high priest, who offered himself as a sacrifice for us and is always praying for us. We can say so much more, um, but I want to close with a a story that I'm a bit hesitant to share uh, because, let's not put that up there yet, uh, because, um, that's not distracting at all when I do that, right? (laughs) I'm a bit hesitant to share this story because it makes me look better than I am, so grain of salt, okay? A few years ago, my transformation into a grumble was almost complete. (laughs) Uh, It was a very hard season of ministry and marriage, and I, man, I felt so sorry for myself. I swear I was becoming a machine, right? A grumbling machine. I I was having trouble, like, even staying in a conversation with Brittany because it would just, like, come back to the same old topics, the things I was grumbling about. Even, like, just distracting myself, watching TV, watching sports, I could start to feel myself, like, just going on and on with the grumble. And by God's grace, at that same time, a friend and I, a fellow pastor, we began a weekly call where we would confess sin to each other. Now, if you've never been around church, you're like, that's weird, bro. <laughs> okay. uh, but it's actually a really good uh, check on your ego. Um, and and it goes all the way back to the early church, to God's word. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. And it says, if we confess our sins, in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So it's a bit awkward at first. You know, we start with big sins, bank robbery, stuff like that, you know. And, uh, but, you know, when you're doing it every week, you start to notice more things, right? And you, we start to get into the nitty-gritty stuff, like just a resentful, bitter, grumbling heart. And we didn't even take very seriously at first, just thought that was normal. Um, and what we started to notice 
that it was actually like the grumbling, the frustrated ego stuff. That was the the bigger deal to God than some of the bigger sins because the little sins are actually like the roots of the big weeds that fester at the surface, right? And like all sin, they are killed and we are healed when pulled up into the light. There's no other way. So for years now, almost every week, we have been confessing our sins to each other and helping each other look up and find healing. We've found that we, we need one another for that. Uh, and every week, we, we finish by saying to each other, hey, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, so go and sin no more. And I, and I close by sharing that with you because, listen, our faces don't begin to shine. We don't grow in joy and peace when we feel really guilty and try to stop grumbling really hard. How's that working, you know? So many people told me, like, I, when I told them I was preaching on grumbling this week, oh, I need that sermon. I always need that sermon, you know? I don't want another just guilt sermon. We don't heal just by trying to do better and grumble less. Hell does begin with a grumbling mood, yes, but healing begins. Heaven begins when someone really sees us as we see ourselves and helps us to walk out of darkness into light, to look up and to remember that God's face is shining on us. He is delight, delighting in us. We need each other to remember that. And then we leave feeling a little lighter in our faces, a little brighter, and trust grows. So, um, close with this. Confess your grumbles to another. Look up to the cross. Remember that your heavenly Father delights in you. He can take care of you and he will lead you home.